Hello and welcome to How to Launch an Industry, brought to you by Marku and Aurora. I am Jayon Marku, your lead moderator for the group discussion today. And as usual, I am joined by Dr. Nigam Aurora. Good morning, everybody. And other members of our group this week are our friends, Dr. Researcher Professor Sarah Jane Ward. Hey, everybody. Also joining us is our resident GMP expert, David Valancourt from the GMP Collective. Hey, how's it going? It's great to be back. And our special guest making his first appearance on the podcast, Rod Kite Esquire, a renowned cannabis and hemp attorney who represents a lot of companies in the space. Welcome to the show. Hello, hello. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, awesome. We have a full house today and a great show for you. For um, our news section, we're going to talk about a little bit about a patent war, the clash of the psychedelics. We're going to talk about some cannabis exports from Uruguay to Germany. Uh, and we're also going to talk about a recent article that came out on SciBiz about the history of psychedelics. And for our science discussion, we're going to talk about double-blind comparisons between hallucinogens, their sort of effects on cognition and impairment, and as well as a study that compares Delta-8, THC, CBD, and CBN on their ability to permeate human skin. And lastly, Nigam's going to have a new game for us. Is that correct? Tell us about this game before we <clears throat> jump into the news. Yeah, it's going to be pretty fun. So before we've played this 20-question style, guess the psychedelic or guess the cannabinoid. So today we're going to play guess the research institute. So we'll get to that at the end. Excellent. Wow, that is so cool. I can't wait. Well, to jump right in on Symposia, that begins with a silent P, you can find an article about Usona and Compass Pathways. Uh, I call this story Clash of the Psychedelics. So basically you have Compass Pathways, which is um, sort of cliche in that it's millionaires trying to corner a market by patenting a bunch of things that are in the public domain, like Albert Hoffman's method for synthesizing psilocybin. And then you have Usona, if I'm saying that correctly, who is more open science, has published many articles in the public domain, and they're going to clash over patents on things like uh, the manufacturing of LSD, the manufacturing of psilocybin. Now, sometimes patents can be a great way for people to protect their IP, their intellectual property. I know that if I had patents as a younger person on the things I worked on, I would not be doing this podcast. I'd be on a beach drinking Mai Tais, um, as I can only assume. But maybe certain progress would have been made in the space. You know, other researchers wouldn't have been able to build on that or take it and run. Maybe who knows what that impact would be. So there is this other side of patents that limit innovation, prevent people from working with things. Um, you know, and one of the famous examples is Marconi and Tesla. You know, Marconi used like 23 of Tesla's patents to build a telegraph. So, you know, patents um, can be good and bad. So, you know, Rod, it's your first time on the show. I want to give you the first at bat on this topic of patents in the psychedelic space. What are your thoughts uh, on this article? Um, yeah, well, you know, I think my, my initial thought on this is this is just, you know, a, a cynical land grab in, in a lot of respects by, by Compass. And, you know, to be clear, you know, I'm an attorney. My, my primary job is to protect my clients in all the different ways. I'm not a patent attorney, but we certainly engage with patent attorneys and, and protect intellectual property in all the different ways. So, so I'll start with that disclaimer that I, am, I think it's really important uh, and, and drives innovation. That being said, you know, the, the law has this piece about non-obviousness. And when we have a, a new and, 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 and fruitful area of, of um, study here, and we've got uh, a company that goes in and just sees everything, and, 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 and you can't see me, listener, right? but I'm sort of grabbing, you know, I'm, I'm wrapping my arms around and, and grabbing everything in sight in the hopes that, that maybe some, some pieces of that will will stick. It, it, it's just very cynical, and I think it's it's counter to everything that, that at least I perceive the psychedelic movement to be about. Um, so I, I, I'm glad that you picked this article. I think it's it shows an important dynamic that's happening right now uh, between open source, let's get some information and research versus, hey, let's let's try to grab as much as we can and, and make all the bucks. <laughs> yep. Very, very interesting. Thank you, Rod. Um, Sarah, I want to get a different perspective before we, we toss the ball over to David and Nigam. 
When you're doing research, do, do patents affect what you can do? Um, is, this a, is this a thought when you're looking at an experiment being like, oh, there's a compound A and compound B that are related and compound A is off patent, so we're going to use that one. Are, are these decisions that affect research at all in your experience? So no, not, not for me, but some of it probably goes back to what you were alluding to, Jayhan, is I forget to ever think about that kind of stuff. And, you know, I'm just happy to be able to, you know, get a few dollars together to run some experiments. And I, so I, I don't think about patent issues in my, in my everyday research life. I think the, the one area where I do think about it is, and this is more of a general thought on natural products is that I, my concern with natural products and, you know, things like CBD is that we're held back by progress, by people's ability to make money off of these things. So I just overall feel sad that there is probably this um, inevitable tension between let's try to get some of these natural products, get some of these phytocannabinoids alone or in combination as medicines that can be FDA approved that people can use. But then the questions of, well, who's going to make money off of that? And so that's, that's my really naive uh, thinking on that topic. So it really all just makes me sad and concerned that, that this is going to be a necessary obstacle to moving phytocannabinoids or psychedelics um, into the clinic to, to become medicines. This is a very good point. Um, you know, it does seem like it's a bit of a juxtaposition where patents can either help research and raise funding for it, but also limit what you can do in terms of innovation and advancing that into clinical trials. Because if someone's sitting on the patent, you can't potentially use it. They could, they could send a cease and desist or sue you or something like that. Um, you know, what was interesting about the USANA Institute is they had the statement on open science and open practice with psilocybin, MDMA, and similar substances with uh, 132 individuals and organizations that signed on to it, but notably not Compass. Um, so Nigam, I wanted to ask you um, about, you know, your thoughts on Usana and their approach in this space. Do you think that they're going to keep the field open for psychedelic space or is Compass going to squash them? <laughs> How do you, what's your interpretation? So uh, one thing I just want to say, and I don't always say this, that I would encourage listeners to read this article. Um, sometimes we review things that are a little more, you know, nitty gritty in the science. This is like a really good summation of what's going on here. And I think um, it, people who are familiar with the cannabis space will see a lot of parallels. But to answer your direct question, I think this is just getting started. Um, I, I think this kind of battle is going to rumble on. Um, and it's interesting about uh, places like USANA publishing these things as open source, kind of creating this um, body of prior art. But what we've seen in this article is that having prior art didn't really stop Compass. Now, they had to go through three cycles of getting sued and reducing their claims, but they still have a patent on something. One other comment I'd make that always comes up in my mind during these things. And as I've thought about them in the cannabis space is that this is why um, home grow gifting laws are important too, because I wholly appreciate what Sarah's saying. And I agree with it on the medical clinical side, but at the same time, just like people should be able to cultivate their own cannabis legally in their homes and in their communities and gift it to each other, then I, I don't think it's so different with mushrooms. Oh, uh, <clears throat> I, I hear you. And one of the things that, um, David, you'll probably like this, um, in the article, Usona also said they'll provide current good manufacturing practice psilocybin to qualified researchers at no cost if they submit full protocol and other documentation for review and evaluation. Uh, is that... Uh, is that uncommon for organizations to do that sort of thing? I mean, well, does, do you like hearing that or do you think that um, that's unnecessary? What are your thoughts? Um, 
No, I loved, uh, you know, getting towards the end of that article, right, where they kind of just drop that in there at the last moment before wrapping up. I uh, don't know what to make of that, but, um, you know, it's good that it was referenced there. And I think it's great in terms of the idea of, you know, it's almost like, I don't, I don't know if David and Goliath is the right analogy for this situation, but in some ways, I think so. And great. Um, thank you for being there and providing safe medicine that you're producing through your kind of open source, uh, open science model to further the advance of science. And um, I, I also would say looking at it, you know, them submitting, asking the researchers to submitting full protocol, I think it should actually be the other way around in terms of the research mm. institutions asking them for their CGMP, you know, protocols and uh, validations. So that's, you know, really what I think is, is pertinent there. But um, no, I, I mean, it's this interesting situation, right, as everybody's painted. And I'm also interested to see how it falls in terms of looking at the cannabis patents that a lot of folks are doing that land grab. And I, I don't know, maybe there's some, somebody can correct me here, but I haven't seen how that's been monetized at all besides investor money. I don't see how that's going to play out in terms of the marketplace, because if you have this unique novel patent on it, <clears throat> there's no competition, you have a monopoly and you don't have any other data besides your own biased data to show how amazing this product or process is. And I just, and I think a lot of the, what I've looked at from a science lens, when I've been asked to look at some of these um, patents and, you know, this novel, you know, what their, their claims are, um, it's, it's not that special at the end of the day. Like, I don't think anybody's producing anything crazy wild that they're patenting, uh, even though they may think so. Very good point. Now, David, I want to go to you again for our next story about the land of chocolate, uh, Germany. And many people don't know uh, Germany produce, you know, has you know, that's where gummy bears come from, right? And uh, now cheesequake is hitting Germany. That is, uh, cannabis flour is being imported, according to uh, German twenty four news, de twenty four news, and also reported by Marijuana Moment and our other glorious um, industry sources. So. But however, what struck me this article, and I want to ask you while we're on GMP, is this seems to suggest that flowers that are grown and harvested in a facility without EU GMP certification can, under cer certain circumstances, be sold in Germany. But I mean, it'll probably be processed in a GMP. I feel like this is uh, a really weird loophole and possibly a bad idea. Um, could you, <laughs> I mean, it's like if it's grown in Germany, you better be GMP. But if we're importing it from some other country, forget about it. Uh, that just seems, I, what, what's going on here? I don't understand. Is it, is it that the manufacturing side of the GMP is going to catch any errors and keep it safe? Because um, I would thought GMP needed to be through the whole supply chain. Um, what, what's going on here? So yeah, I was really glad to see this article and I'm glad you kind of brought that question up because I was just talking about this with uh, some colleagues a couple of weeks ago and it's happening. Um, this is actually kind of precedent for better or for worse in the, the dr pharmaceutical drug industry too. So all the raw ingredients that go into APIs that go into pharma, 80% of those are produced in India and China and the control of the supply chain. So your question really is, what is required on the you know final packager in Germany? What kind of due diligence do they have to do on their supply chain of the raw materials? And the Uruguay uh, company is a major supplier to the German uh, you know producer packager, however you know manufacturer, however we want to you know call it. So the you know BFRAM in Germany that oversees the FDA equivalent in Germany that oversees it, they're looking at the German. Uh, company and it's on that on the German company to show that the supplier in Uruguay is uh, you know demonstrating safe products and you know meet specifications that they require so it's kind of a loophole in some ways and uh, honestly I've been waiting for this to happen I'm surprised it hasn't happened sooner because again pharma can go through like eight chains until it gets to the US soil and the amount of um, of control is uh, kind of a little little eerie in some ways <clears throat> um, it just puts the burden of, of due diligence on that final person, if that makes sense. No, that does make sense. Uh, thank you, David. I, I want to go to, to Rod because, you know, we talked about from the GMP side. Now imagine, you know, uh, I can't imagine what a, I know you don't know German law per se, but what would, you, would there be some guidance that you might offer clients to maybe mitigate risk who are 
importing cannabis from this weird loophole? Because it seems to, you know, maybe open up your products to certain risks, like maybe the label won't match up or it'll be contaminated or not fit to your standard. Um, do you have some thoughts or ideas on there? Maybe you faced a similar situation where, you know, in the U.S. people were importing hemp that didn't meet certain certifications or certain testing standards. Yeah, get a really, really good, robust uh, indemnification um, provision with the companies that's providing the. <laughs> um, that's half in jest, whole in earnest. But no, I, you know, I think that that's a, a really good point. You know, if you're if you're the one that's out there distributing this product and you can't trace it all the way back, that the, the the GMP GACP practices were uh, were were in effect all the way back, there is some risk there. And you know, if people players in this in this space tend to be risk tolerant, but, but we have yet to see a, a, a major um, crisis moment where there is some, you know, some people getting sick and it traces back to, to not good quality. Um, and if I could just follow up real quickly on that, you know, what, really what I would be advising clients uh, in Germany right now is, oh my gosh, look at this opportunity. There is a loophole because, you know, you, you look at things and, and, and I actually represent clients in, um, in Germany and, and in Uruguay for that matter. And, and this whole, you know, getting the GMP going back to the, you know, to the very, very beginning of the beginning of the supply chain, meaning the, 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 the production uh, has been a major um, holdup. And so clearly it can be done. I think this is this tiny, you know, little, little hole, so to speak, that's just going to likely just widen up. Uh, and I think it's driven by the, the age old supply and demand. You know, Germany needs this product. And, and it's and, and so that we're going to see more of this for, for sure. And my advice to clients is going to be, let's see how we can we can we can navigate this and, and make that hole bigger. But by the way, let's let's pop in that good indemnification clause. <laughs> I like it, you know, protect everyone. I think that's that's a really fair approach. And, you know, you'd make a great point because this is really about people who need it having access to it. But but as kind of Sarah said in a previous podcast, doing that in a safe way. You know, we need to fill this societal need, and but we need to do it in a safe way. And uh, I, I like that quote so much, I put it on my LinkedIn, Sarah. Um, but I wanted to go to you and, you know, you can answer this question or not, but one of the things I'd be curious is, let's just say you were designing a, a cannabis flower trial and you were sourcing it as a researcher. Um, would, would you know, and, and you had this loophole that made it kind of easier for you to get product for studies. Do you think that's something you would consider doing? Or do you think you'd just be like, no, I just want to know 100% what's going in the animals and 100% traceable. I don't want to have to worry about indemnification clauses. <laughs> um, you know, I, I kind of see this as maybe like something that could facilitate research, but I do have some concerns, you know, about um, cannabis being sold in the same market used for different purposes that doesn't have to meet the same standards when it when it's harvested. Yeah, I mean, it's so different for the animal studies. <laughs> you know, I would say we're not even not even allowed to use cannabis flower extracts from the United States, <laughs> um, you know, on my research because, you know, I have my schedule one drug license. I have to order, um, you know, purified compounds. And um, so. I guess what I'm hearing from you is it, it's, it would be so novel just to have access to it that you would say, I, honestly, we need to do this research. It's more important than maybe having an official certificate at this point because it's so limited. I mean, that's kind of what I hear you saying. Yeah, and, and it's especially if the, you know, I know that the GMP concerns are so important when you're giving these drugs to humans and not to say that I'm not very concerned about my rats and mice in my laboratory, but our main concern is that is our product, does, does what I'm testing have what I think it has in it? And even when we get CBD, we can, you know, test it to make sure it's 99.9% CBD. So my biggest concern would be, does this um, extract, does this flower have what it says in it, whether I'm focused on the 22% THC component or, you know, what the other things are. But I, I actually, there's, there's a new product on the market, which is a vaporizing unit that you can use for animal studies that you can, Ooh. I know, I'm so excited. It's- uh, Are you I'm, hot boxing rats? Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly, absolutely. Um, oh. So, you know, I'm just trying to decide whether or not to pull the trigger on that purchase. But then again, then the question is what can I put in it legally 
as a researcher at a you know federally funded academic institution. Um, that's amazing, Sarah. Um, and I would say, don't let the federal law stop you. No, just kidding. I'm kidding. Please keep your Schedule One license. I disagree with that one, right? Yeah. Let's let's go to legal real quick. Uh, Rod, uh, do you have a comment or question for the group uh, about yeah, you know, this story? Well, just to follow up to Sarah's point, to, to you, Sarah, and or to the group, you know, from from the lawyer style, I'm talking to researchers here. Um, you know, to what degree do, does does a research um, researcher de depend on these certifications versus their own, uh, um, you know, separate analysis of the product? So you get you get um, something in that you're gonna, a, a compound of whatever sort, whether it's, it's flour or it's an extract or it's a cannabinoid isolate um, that you're going to be researching. Do you say, oh, good, we've looked at all the certificate analysis and all the all the documentation, it's good to go? Oh, and or, or do you ever say we're gonna we're gonna do our own analysis to make sure that this doesn't contain pesticides? It's what it says it is, and so on and so forth. And, and what if you only do it sometimes? What determines that? So I can speak from um, doing cannabinoid receptor binding studies and using radio labeled THC. And you know there were some companies that made really good THC that seemed to work very well, and others just seemed to be just garbage and fall apart quickly, and just not function uh, on a more reliable way. But, um, you know, that's just from, you know, the level of the receptor that, yeah, definitely there would be a couple tests I would run at baseline just to kind of see, you know, how, how pure these were um, just in my hands in the lab and what worked most consistently before I started, you know, going to town on experiments. Um, but, but Sarah, I'm sure you've had similar experiences where you know, you're, you're going through different suppliers, different batch numbers, different lot numbers to get like the right medium, even though it's called the same thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. So um, a year ago when, when our lab received the grant from the NCCIH, uh, which is the complementary medicine uh, division at NIH, um, they um, require that before I even got the grant that I um, got provide a certificate of analysis for the CBD and CBG and THCA um, that I was going to test and had an independent third party confirm that. So for NIH funded research on natural products, that's required. Um, and I'm in the middle of resubmitting a paper to the British Journal of Pharmacology. And they now actually also have a natural products guideline where you have to state uh, where you got the product and that you have an independent third-party verification. So, so it, it's getting stricter even just to receive funding and to, to publish results with natural products. Interesting. I, I, legally speaking, uh, I would be a little scared if a journal was like, where did you get this weed? Where'd you get this CBD products? Um, my dealer, but, he's great. He's uh, right. Right. Yeah. down the street. Right? It's, just, it's this guy in Mississippi. He grows the best stuff. Um, <laughs> but, well, that's uh, what I said to the NIH. I was like, but I'm getting my CBD from you. And they're like, oh, we don't care. You still need a third party to verify it. We don't okay. even trust ourselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, David, um, you know, I, I had, you know, Rod and Sarah brought up some interesting concepts about supplier qualification. And, and I just want to let you off the chain to kind of address that. Yeah, I mean, thank you, uh, Jehan. And uh, that's exact in the GMP world, it's a supplier qualification program and kind of in, in just, you know, whether it's retail or any sort of goods manufacturing, um, what's your qualification? What does your agreement look like? And, you know, folks should be working with, you know, people like Rod and his team to make sure that your legal agreement uh, includes appropriate specifications. I worked on a, on a lawsuit as an expert witness um, more recently and exhibit A with the specifications of the product quality was was blank. And, um, you know, that you're kind of setting yourself up for failure there. The analogy I use is you go to a contract brewery and say, make me beer. Okay, cool. Here's beer. Well, does it have any alcohol in it? How much alcohol? You know, is it the three-two beer in Utah? Is it um, you know high gravity? You know, eight percent with a bunch of hops. What are your specifications? And then, how are you verifying it? Do you trust them? Is it? I know a guy. Have you you know worked with them for a while? Are you doing independent testing your you know of their C of A's through a third-party lab, or do you have the controls in place? And you just need to think through those and assess a ri the risk and take the appropriate amount of you know independent verification. Yeah, I just like to stick my hand in the beer before it's bottled and just kind of drink it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a fine way to do a sampling. Um, Nigam, uh, before we go into our last uh, a news article, I want to give you a chance to, to comment here. Um, just real quick, because I know we got to move on to the next story. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, my, my thought about this is a, a little bit different um, in that, to me, it seemed sort of strange to see when you're reading the details of this article that humans in Germany need cannabis for medical purposes. So they're getting this cannabis from Portugal where it's been sitting some of it since early 2019 and it's late 2020 uh, on this recording. And then before that it was in Uruguay. Um, And that seems like a long (laughs) What, what is this the 1800s well, like people are just shipping <laughs> cannabis all around and just so, sits on a dock for a year it's so funny i was i was laughing in the background a little bit uh, a minute ago when david says he's talking about beer as like a, a parallel he says oh i know a guy and i'm thinking well i'm in germany and i need medical cannabis but i know a guy in uruguay who can send me some anyway so i'm uh i understand and 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 i heard rod's point i think it's a great point about supply and demand and and the legal kind of archetypes we have about why i understand why this is happening but if we were to not try to reinvent the wheel with cannabis as so often happens but try to just like operate in what is the most seamless logical affordable fashion maybe you could grow the cannabis at the same grade and quality near where the people need it it's it's a good point i mean uh, germany is known for its forests and agriculture it's it's a good place so um you know maybe it's a, it's an issue that they faced for a long time where it's maybe not optimal for growing the drug producing type but more for the fiber type but you know i think that that's a good point because there are greenhouses there's a lot of technology that could be used on site it's it's a that's a really good point so our last sort of hit, uh, news article comes from SciTech.biz that had a, a conference recently, and they posted this interesting article that I actually enjoyed called The Complete Abridged History of Psychedelics. Now, we just have a couple minutes left for this segment, so I kind of wanted just to go around and say, you know, have give each one of our, our members here a chance to just say what they learned about this article. Was there, was there a standout fact that, that surprised you? Um, so... I am going to pick Nigam first. <laughs> what um, in this article about the history of psychedelics? Was there something that just stood out to you? You're like, oh wow, I didn't realize uh, it was so widespread, or I didn't realize there was this guy named Albert Hoffman that had a bicycle ride that changed the future of psychedelics. Um, <laughs> probably the most famous story there is, but um, your, your thoughts. Yeah, what surprised so, you? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. Uh, I I am familiar with the bicycle ride anecdotally. <laughs> um, couple there, I did actually pull some standout stats. One was, I'm quoting, by the mid 1960s, over one million Americans had tried LSD. That would have been like half the population. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I didn't look up the population. I, I can in the background here in a minute, but um, or just five people <laughs> that took a lot of acid. <laughs> well, it wasn't one million doses. It was one million people. Ah, uh, wow! Yeah. Holy cow! Yeah, that's a lot of people. So, um, and then five years later, it's banned along with ayahuasca, psilocybin, anything that may open the the minds of people or convince them to become communists is what the article also said. Um, anyways, uh, the other standout stat that I thought was cool was they were talking about some studies in the 50s where they had used LSD to treat over 40,000 alcoholics and they had a 50% full um, like recovery rate. So they cured half of 40,000 people of alcoholism. And then, you know, 15 years later, it's banned. So. Gotcha. Well, yeah, you know, it's, it's such a weird time. And and I do remember being a young student and then Sarah and I have talked about this at the college on problems of drug dependence. And my first conference there, uh, it was like people started to be able to do LSD research again. It was smoking cessation for LSD was the first technical talk I ever saw 
um, on this. It was it blew my mind. Uh, I didn't even realize that this was a, a facet of psychedelic research. But uh, David, um, was there something that particularly struck you about this abridged history of the twelve thousand years of psychedelic use? Yeah, and you know, Nigam, you kind of teed me off there in a way that, you know, look at the research that's been done in the past. And of course, let's not forget that they, they banned it in the 70s. And here we are in 2020 with COVID and uh, it's still banned yet alcohol and liquor stores are an essential business. So um, that's one thing. But number two, I would also like to throw out the maybe crazy idea um, that, you know, this idea of cannabis is a gateway drug it most certainly is right now in a good way. I think that it's helping pioneer and reopen the idea of, you know, psychedelics and whatnot for research and gain traction. So that's, that's my, my statement for that. Excellent. Thank you, David. Um, Sarah, was there uh, something about this article that you were surprised to read? I mean, there was a lot of cool facts, you know, my favorite one was probably the the Comanche chief who dropped off 50 pounds of peyote in the 1890s for scientific research, um, you know, sort of the dawn of scientific research and psychedelics. Um, but was there, was there something that really struck you about this article? Yeah, I think, you know, the more, and you guys have been my gateway drug to psychedelics <laughs> because, you know, as I've mentioned before, I've really, aside from knowing that we have some colleagues at Johns Hopkins that do some great research, really hadn't followed it. Um, and it, so two things struck me about the article. One thing that I liked about the article is that it talked about the history without sneaking in that premise that because people have used it for thousands of years, it's really safe and essential and a great idea. And I'm not saying that it's not, but I was, I was glad to see the article written sort of objectively on that history. Mm. Uh, I thought that that was a strength of the article and I thought it was a great read. And then the other thing that it does for me, again, is remind me of where I was 10, 15, 20 years ago in my thoughts on cannabis. You know, all of my friends make fun of me because I was the one kid in the group that never touched the stuff um, in high school and college. And being a substance abuse researcher, um, you know, I've just changed my views so much on cannabis being involved in the research and I'm excited to educate myself about psychedelics. One quick thing that, and I don't know that this is true or not, I've been trying to think about it today. I feel like with cannabis right now, the biggest need is still to demonstrate efficacy in clinical trials. And I almost feel like the psychedelic field is doing really well at that. And I think maybe what people wanna hear more about is the safety. Um, but again, maybe that's because I'm biased because I'm in the cannabinoid field and know less about psychedelics. Um, so, you know, the, going back to the stigma and the vilification, um, you know, work needs to be done on that end, similar to the work that we and other of my colleagues do on educating people about the historical vilification of cannabis. Yeah, yeah. And we can never forget Captain Bringdown Richard Nixon, who made it all schedule one. Um, you know, Rod, uh, give us your perspective. What, you know, you, you, you come to this uh, podcast with a different background than all of us. Um, and I'd just be interested to see what kind of struck you or, or made you think about something new with this article. Yeah, so I, I think, you know, as, as sort of a psychedelics geek, I thought it was it was kind of super abridged, but but well done. To me, this was sort of an intro article to to people who who are interested but don't necessarily understand or get the fact that that, that psychedelics have been with us and really globally for for thousands of years. So that, I think that was the the big um, takeaway, sort of a second, more minor, but really important takeaway is that I, I think what we're seeing in, in, in this article presents that is it's it's almost inseparable to study psychedelics with, without um, simultaneously thinking about consciousness and, and the nature of our place in, in the universe. And I think that's one of the things about psychedelics that separate them from, from any, other, uh, any other compound. You know, it, they can be used for, you know, the, the research is, is developing, they can be used for, for all sorts of, um, where there's possibilities for use and all sorts of things, addiction and so on that are very important. But, but, but it really gets to the heart of, of, of consciousness, um, which is uh, hugely important. And I think we're gonna see a, that, that type of research um, continuing to grow. 
Excellent. Thank you so much. Well, that uh, I think that wraps it up for our news section. Um, I thought it was a terrific discussion, especially about the EU GMP imports um, in Germany or lack of EU GMP <laughs> imports in <into> Germany. <laughs> right. So now let's go to rapid fire science. Uh, going to go around, provide brief commentary and discussion about some articles. And uh, the first one that I'd like to talk about is one of the first serious studies on the cognitive effects that is impairment, things like visual processing and coordination and psychedelics. Uh, this study is entitled Double Blind Comparison of the Two Hallucinogens, Psilocybin and Dextromethorphan Effects on Cognition, published in Psychopharmacology. Uh, I thought this was a pretty cool study. They got participants in, they gave them the different substances and put them through a battery of examinations. Um, Sarah, uh, what did you think of this study? Yeah, so as a pharmacologist, I was excited um, to see the study, especially to see dose response curves, to see the dose related effects and you know, give us an idea of how impairing um, at least uh, the psilocybin was at different doses. And then they compared it to one dose of dextromethorphan, but they gave the rationale that they've already studied a wide range of doses in, in a previous um, set of experiments. So yeah, I, I thought it was great. You know, these are the kinds of data that I look for um, to try to understand what the impairing effects are. I think it's also important, um, you know, they were, so they were comparing two different classes of um, psychedelics. And that will be relevant when we think about the different populations of people that we might be thinking about the different indications. So, you know, these two compounds, not to go into details of, of the experiment because they measured lots and lots of different um, parameters, but that they, they produce some different effects. So, so psilocybin was impairing on certain um, aspects of performance and functioning and dextromethorphan on others. And so do we need to be a little bit more cautious using one versus the other in a different age population or for different uh, clinical indications. So I, th I thought it was great, you know, to see some nice controlled double blind um, and, and multi-dose uh, data. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a great point about the populations because if you have something that's affecting psychomotor movement, um, like psilocybin seemed to more greatly affect that um, from what I, when I gathered from the article, you know, yeah, I could see a, a, an elderly population maybe if there's an increased risk of slips and falls, maybe you know you're going to have to change the parameters of how you administer that, or maybe not administer it to that population. Um, but you know, Rod, I want to I want to ask you, you know, because we've we've discussed a lot about cannabis use and, and DUIs and impairment testings. One of the things I guess I'd be worried about is a bunch of money that should be going to research and education initiatives around psychedelics is going to be you know, they're going to try to make a, a fungus breathalyzer and a disassociative hallucinogen vape, you know, to, to make, to, you know, what hallucinogen are you on while you're driving? Um, it, I don't feel like that's the right path we should be taking when we think about driving or, you know, public safety in these products. Is there, are there simple tools available, do you think, that law enforcement could use or, or other concerned people to measure cognitive impairment without worrying about what substance it is? Yeah, I mean, they're difficult tools and they're simpler tools. The difficult tool is to do exactly what you're saying is, hey, what, what substance are you on? And, and so let's measure how much of it is on your breath or in your blood plasma or, or whatever. And that's just a, that's, that's an infinity of, of different types of tests and, and, um, and parameters versus are you impaired or not? And, and can, you know, regardless of whether you've been drinking um, alcohol, you know, you're tweaked out on coffee or you've been taking ketamine or psilocybin, are you impaired? Because that's what we're concerned about. And there are some tools that, that are developing where, where you can say, well, these are the things that we're measuring, psychomotor um, and, and, and timing for, you know, for making rapid decisions and so on and so forth. And, and there are some developing technologies that can do that. So I think that, that we're used to this alcohol thing that says, okay, well, if you're have ingested X amount of alcohol, you can be impaired Y amount. Uh, and it tends to work fairly well, but with most other of these um, substances that, that affect our subjective sense of, um, of, of time and space, 
um, whether they be alcohol or, or cannabis or, or some different types of psychedelics, uh, again, the key is, you know, are you impaired? Are you able to drive or not? And I think that's the route that we need to take. I'm just concerned that we're not. It's a very good point, you know, and oftentimes when I think of, of issues with time and space, I think of physics, but I'm going to have to adjust that to discuss psychedelics. And, <laughs> and, and timing is an important thing. You know, one of the things that always limited, in my mind, the utility of psychedelics, uh, you know, when I first started reading about them many years ago was how long they can last and, and how long you could have effects, you know, several hours. And me being having you know slight ADD and wanting to do a million things, I was like, I can't. I don't even sleep for eight hours a day. Like, why would I take something that would affect me for eight hours a day, other than you know a couple cups of coffee? But Sarah, um, are there some questions we should be asking about um, you know these drugs that maybe we're not thinking about? Because you know one thing is how it's affecting you in this one hour window, but but what about you know the rest of the time? Um, yeah, yeah, and actually, uh, I'd like to point out almost the opposite. Um, again, sort of complementing this article, you know, again, going back to what people think they know about the bad effects of psychedelics or cannabis. The literature that is out there, and again, I can speak for cannabis, is, you know, what are the adverse effects of cannabis? Almost all of that literature is in chronic recreational cannabis users. What is the effect on IQ and what is the effect on fertility or X, Y, and Z? And for, for the application and understanding of medical cannabis and its safety, what we need to know is what are the potential adverse effects after one acute administration of a certain dose. So I think that's another nice thing about this article is that you know, yes, we need to understand what chronic use of psychedelics may produce, but what are the acute, and as you said, one hour, eight hour, 12 hour, we need to know the, the time course. But again, relevant to your question to Rob, how, if somebody used this in therapy, how can it impact driving? How can it impact their performance at work and all of these different liabilities? And I, I think it's always really important to stress what we're talking about, acute adverse effects that might impact our everyday ability to get around and be safe versus effects of long-term chronic use on other parameters. Uh, that's a really good point. I, I, I think it's a very fascinating thing because, you know, if you, the article you mentioned earlier about Albert Hoffman, who had to be escorted home the first time he accidentally exposed himself to LSD, but the next day felt so refreshed and vibrant. Um, you know, that, that, you know, what time window are we talking about? Are we talking about a single exposure or multiple exposures? Um, it's a very good question. I want to give uh, Nigam David a chance to comment on this before we go to the next article, which I also think is very relevant and very cool. Um, you guys good for the moment? Yeah, I'd love to add briefly, if I could, um, that I think we forget um, and we take for granted how easy it is to test for alcohol. You know, Rod, you kind of pointed that out. We've got a pretty reliable test, the breathalyzer, right? And it, it's it's fairly robust, consistent across, you know, population, uh, et cetera. Um, just because it's easy for alcohol, all the other drugs is just not that simple. And we just expect it to, to be that, that way. And you really need to train and educate educate whether it's law enforcement or otherwise to look for the effects i mean you can you know go take your your nyquil or benadryl and go drive and is that is that safe just because it's an otc you know uh you can get it over the counter um we need to look for those impairment effects and look at public safety from a holistic not reduce it to a simple test um you know cannabis is the perfect example right where it's you know lipophilic or fat soluble and uh heavy chronic regular user will always test positive in their bloodstream and are they do they have any impairment effects i you know they can pass the test because they haven't consumed in days but they're going to fail a blood test so i think we need to just keep that in mind too great points everyone um so we're going to go on to the a study about the human permeation of delta 8 thc compared to its friends um 
including cannabidiol and cannabinol, published in the Journal of Pharmacy and Pharmacology. Um, now, this is a, a little bit dated study. It did come out in 2004. So whoever chose this study is probably going to get fired from the podcast. How dare you pick a study that was published before Colorado went legal? Um, but I thought this, again, more seriously, this is my one of my favorite types of studies. It's just the studies that compare to other drugs. Because when you look at these things in a vacuum, you're like, oh, it can jump through the hoop that we're testing. But when you compare it to other things, you might be like, yeah, it doesn't really jump through the hoop so well. Um, so one of the things I, I was looking at in is just that, you know, what is a better cannabinoid for skin permutation? And, and Nigam, you know, you didn't get a chance too much to talk on the last article. So I wanted to toss it to you, you know, with all the CBD skin creams, CBN skin creams and Delta 8 THC sort of starting to be like this new cannabinoid that no one knows anything about, but seems to think it has all these wonderful things. This article gave me pause to think about whether or not we should really be formulating it in skin permeating products. What, you know, would you, what, what are your thoughts? So one thing I thought was really interesting, and this may be like a sign of the times, when you read into this article, it's actually not addressing topicals for the reason we see topicals now like this has absolutely nothing to do with cbd face cream um which i'm which is which i'm not saying anything bad about that if that works for folks great um but what this is about is about transdermal delivery of a drug like we would see transdermal patches for uh smoking cessation with nicotine or of like um opiate you know replacement therapy and stuff like this so what they're the reason they did this is because they're trying to find a better way for people going to chemo to get cannabinoids in their body so they don't feel nauseous. And taking uh, pills um, or uh, other types of uh, intaking the drug uh, seem to be problematic for some folks. Or they're thinking, oh, if we can just slap on a high dose patch that not only gives them the relief, but doesn't cause um, psychoactive effects, that that would be beneficial. So I, I just kind of wanted to point that out. The other thing that I thought was interesting that they don't really address, but um, I'm sure a lot of our listeners have experienced with the uh, increasing popularity of Delta-8 uh, THC is that they don't really address if it has the same efficacy as Delta-9 THC on something like nausea. Uh, most folks familiar with, with cannabis and who use it uh, understand about the like kind of stomach settling effects and, and all this kind of thing. But for folks, and this would be like an inter interesting thing to do a poll or, or something similar on for folks who are familiar with Delta eight, who have taken it in different uh, formats, be it edibles, be it uh, consumption of a, a concentrate or whatever, did it help with your nausea? Was it the same? Because what I've heard from folks is that the effects of Delta eight are actually different. And people, they really like it partially because it is different. So those are some initial thoughts. Um, those are good thoughts. And, and I and I love that you clarified about the skin cream because one of the things that, you know, I, I see this study cited a lot um, in the industry is like justification for <laughs> face creams. And it's really not about that. It's about how you formulate the product to penetrate the skin. And the most the surprising thing here for me was, that you know, CBD and CBN in this model were, um, you know, their permeability was tenfold higher than delta eight THC, and delta eight THC seemed to accumulate a lot in the skin. Um, but you know, Sarah, I wanted to kind of ask you maybe a little bit of a clarifier. You know, of course, it's probably good to get you know transdermal um, cannabinoids, you know, to pass through the skin. But if we're having a cannabinoid getting stuck in the, the tissue layer of, of the skin and different layers, could there be potential therapeutic rationale for that? Like it doesn't necessarily have to get in the bloodstream. Uh, maybe if you're treating like, you know, wound healing or something like that, it might be good for it to settle in there. I, I don't know. I just wanted to kind of get your thoughts on this article and maybe an application. Yeah, I think we have one of the most um, exciting and probably quickly emerging therapeutic ideas for cannabinoids is dermatological. Um, so, you know, autoimmune diseases, um, things like lupus that have a skin component, psoriasis, 
eczema, acne. Um, so, you know, there are, there's the whole complement of the endocannabinoid system right within the skin. There are also all of our pain receptors in the skin, trip channels and other things. There's immune cells in our skin, especially with damage. So yeah, whether, you know, we, we'll need to know, is it going to stick around in the skin or is it going to get into the bloodstream and decide which um, would be optimal? You know, so one of the questions with topical that people use topical creams, say for um, pain relief from uh, arthritis of the knee, is it working for people because it's working locally or is it working because it can get into the bloodstream? So I wanted to point out um, a more recent paper for you guys that I really like. It's from the same group. Um, and so they have been you know, following up on this work, um, which is awesome. So there was a publication in European Journal of Pain in 2016 um, the first author is Hamill and the last author is Westland, but the Stinchcomb author is in the middle. And they actually used transdermal CBD in a rat model of arthritis. And they did so many great things in this study. Um, they did four different doses of transdermal CBD and they took plasma levels and they did a bunch of pathological measurements of the knee measured joint inflammation, measured pain, and then correlated the plasma levels of CBD that related to the level of pain relief and reduction of inflammation and joint damage in the rat model. And I was actually recently talking to a rheumatologist who had seen this article and actually liked it. I don't often talk to physicians who compliment animal research and say, yeah, I think they really did something important here that, you know, got me excited and feeling confident. You know, so that's the direction where this transdermal research needs to go in animal models as well as in humans. And the authors, you know, stated back in this older article that we really need in vivo data. So it's great that they got plasma levels. As you said, it'd be great to also know what is the tissue level compartmentalized in the skin. And then lastly, I would say I wish they took the brains out of those animals and then also, you know, got the information of the levels of CBD in the brain because, you know, where are the, it's an arthritis model. There's pain that's coming in from the periphery there's central pain, you know, so where along this pathway is CBD working, which I would argue probably everywhere, but that's me. Yeah. Love uh, CBD. <laughs> I think it's, I think those brain studies are so needed and especially to suss out what regions are we seeing the most concentration of these cannabinoids. I've really only seen ever one presentation um, in years where someone tried to be like, okay, let's just look at the hippocampus. Let's just look at the cerebellum and see where, where are cannabinoids going when, when they are consumed? Yeah, you know, and one, sorry, one criticism that I hear about, you know, CBD and plasma levels is people saying, well, the plasma levels are so low that it couldn't possibly be doing anything. Like, well, A, we don't know that that's true, but B, maybe the, maybe the brain levels are really high and maybe CBD is in the places that are important and stop just looking at the blood. Yeah, well, sometimes when I hear claims about CBD, I say CBD my foot, and maybe that's because all the CBD is going to my foot. <laughs> but we need to, uh, I think we, we, we're we running out of HLI time here, so we're going to move on to the game. You're all welcome to make a quick comment before we do, but hearing none, motion passes. And <laughs> Nigam, um, why don't you take it away with this game you provide for everyone? It is an open internet game, correct? Yeah, so I think you're actually going to need the internet unless you're just so well versed in um, research institutes. So I'll, I'll lay the ground rules. So this is uh, essentially 20 questions, only yes or no questions. You cannot make an outright guess until four questions have been asked. That's our standard rule at HLI. So, um, and what are we trying to guess? We're trying to guess... Uh, research institute or a research core at a university for cannabis or for psychedelics and this could be anywhere um anywhere in the world very cool mm. uh 
if well you know what i have never got to play a game on the podcast so i'd like to ask the first yes or no question um uh let's see um is it uh is it a research center on the west coast of the united states no and uh jayhan i'll uh i'll, I'll keep track so i can repeat these just like uh, you have um david did you have a question are they still act are they actively studying um psychedelics or cannabis today yes okay there are no wrong questions here people is the research program primarily focused on cannabinoids? No. Ooh, the plot thickens. Was the is the institute named after a turn of the century um, psychedelics researcher? No. So uh, to just re to just update everyone who's thinking about this. Um, is it on the west coast of the United States? No. Uh, are they actively doing research today? Yes. Is the research on cannabinoids? No. Is it named after a turn of the century researcher? No. Mm -hmm. um, are they involved with uh, FDA trials currently? I, I, I want to give, this is like tempting to give more away. I'm just gonna say i'm gonna i'm gonna say wow jayhan it's a little hard to answer yes or no. i can rephrase i can yeah, rephrase yeah, yeah. try try that let me try are they currently um recruiting or have open studies for for clinical work on psychedelics yes actively recruiting um the yeah they're actively recruiting are they currently studying psilocybin and Alzheimer's? So um, they are, I'm just confirming. Yeah, so they are actively studying psilocybin. Um, Rod, I don't want to say one way or the other. I, I would say um, I would have zero surprise if, if they were involved uh, in one way or another on a study for Alzheimer's. Um, but let's go with like a, a big yes on, on being involved with psilocybin research. Okay. Was there a long period of time, um, perhaps pre 2000, where they, um, they took a hiatus from doing such research? Hmm. You know, uh, I'm actually not sure. Uh, of the answer to that question, so I'm not going to count it against you. Take it. Hmm. So, sorry, I, sorry. I was like, I don't know if that's a helpful answer. <laughs> they don't have a uh, history tab on their website. There are a lot of other interesting tabs. Are they located out of the Middle East? No. Good question. Are they located within the United States? No. Ah, let's close the tab then. <laughs> um, different from taking a tab or dropping a tab, you close the tab, right? <laughs> so, t table talk here, real quick, uh, with with the, the participants of the game. Um, we have some interesting information here. I believe there is a famous um research center in like switzerland or something like that or maybe holland um is kind of what i'm thinking but i guess my question i might might want to ask but it also could be south america too um you know so i'm just trying to think uh, out loud with you guys because because how many questions are we are we in here so far? I, was, I was about to say so you're you're almost halfway done so you're you're nine down and let me just uh run them quickly so not us west coast currently active not doing cannabinoids, not named after a researcher, actively recruiting for studies, doing psilocybin research. Um, not sure about if they had a long hiatus, which actually means you were only up to eight questions because I couldn't answer that one. They are not located in the Middle East. They are not located in the United States. Okay. So is this uh, re research center located in Europe? It is. Uh -huh. 
Questions, questions. Is this research center um, researching nootropics besides psychedelics? Hmm. So, man, okay, how do I answer this without giving it away? Um, <laughs> let me say, <laughs> I want to say the wrong thing right now. Let me say that from what I'm seeing from studies coming out of there, as well as looking at their website, it seems primarily, heavily, primarily focused on psychedelics. Gotcha. That's a great question, though. Um, I, I might have a guess, uh, if everyone's okay with that. Mm -hmm. I'm okay is, with is it. it. Is it the Mind Foundation? It is not the Mind Foundation. Oh, curses. And wait, how did the, we didn't really establish the rules here. Does that mean Jahan's out? Or like, does that mean everyone loses? <laughs> like, how does no, that counts as a it question. It as a question. Yeah. Okay. Um, so not the Mind Foundation. Yeah, okay. not the Mind Foundation. Is mm -hmm. it in uh, Northwestern Europe? Uh, I, sorry, I have to think about geography. Um, no, it's not. <laughs> It's not in Northwestern Europe specifically. <laughs> like the UK. Wait, 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 Sarah, Sarah, I did it wrong. It is in Northwestern Europe. Okay. I, I apologize. I, That's okay. I'm, I'm playing games with, I'm, I'm accidentally playing a game within a game here. <laughs> okay, it is, it is in Northwestern Europe. Okay. Hmm. So that rules out like Israel, that rules out um, a lot of those other ones. That's maybe why you asked about the Middle East question. Yeah, Sarah. rules, rules out Switzerland. Mm -hmm. Is it it's, in the UK? It is. And just, I'm just counting the questions. So you, let's see, you guys have. I'm gonna feel really silly because I think I might have met some of the people that work at this place a couple of years ago. <laughs> you have a, you have six questions left, including guessing it, but you guys are inching ever closer. So it sounds uh, sounds like it is in the UK, according to it this. Is. Yeah. I mean that there's not. I already guessed once. I want to give someone else a chance if they want to guess. I'll guess it unless someone else wants to go. Please, sir. Is it the Imperial College of London? Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> it is the Center for Psychedelic Research at the Imperial College of London. That's good, because I was going to say the Beckley Foundation, um, <laughs> so, which also has research. That, that's cool. Nigam, tell us about the Imperial College of London. I didn't realize that they had like a proper psychedelic center. Yeah, so um, the reason I picked this was because uh, recently there was this uh, SciTech conference, and um, I had attended that. A lot of great talks, a lot of interesting stuff, and I and I was looking at some of the different companies and research, and um, just in other preparatory um, studies, you know, for the, for our podcast and and you doing client work and all this kind of stuff. Just so many times I keep coming across um, Imperial College of London, the Imperial College of London, and I wasn't. Um, super familiar with them prior but getting more into the the study of psychedelics um actively their name just kept popping up so i thought this was a cool opportunity to kind of shine the spotlight on them um but yeah they're doing some pretty cool research um on multiple um compounds just reading off their site here uh lsd uh, psilocybin, MDMA, DMT, and ayahuasca. So they have pretty broad reach, which I've um, also seen, just, just like I said, on on like seeing them in, in, in a, a lot of different research areas. Yeah, no, fascinating. Well, also well done, Sarah. I didn't mean to take away from your, your hand raising. You're the victory of the 20 <laughs> questions championship today. Well done, everyone. Uh, this was a great game, Nigam. I, I uh, this was way better than the cannabinoid I chose last time for I was, trying, the cannabinoid. I was trying not to I was trying not to bring that up, but since you did. Uh. <laughs> oh. If well, I could also add, I just looking at their main website, not related to the psychedelics, but they have a research on carbon releasing zombie fires and peatlands could be dampened by new findings. They're doing all sorts of interesting work. Oh wow. Did you say zombie fires? Yes, I did. I'll put the link in the chat so you guys can uh, really be entertained later. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, 
Wow. Uh, I have what? a job postings page. That's what I <laughs> that was where I was going next. RFP, please. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we are uh, nearing the end of the podcast. I want to thank everyone. Uh, you know, Sarah, Jane Ward, it's always a pleasure to have you on. And as one of our core members, also David as well. And, you know, Rod Kite, you're new to the show. Where, where can people find out more information about you? Um, are you speaking somewhere uh, next year or so? Uh, you don't have to answer that, but um, where can people find out more information um, about you? Sure. So um, my website is cannabusiness.law, uh, and that's my website. I, I maintain a blog uh, about cannabis uh, legal issues, and you can also reach me, Rod, at cannabusiness.law. So thanks for having me. I've, I've enjoyed myself immensely, and, and nice to speak with you on all these fun, fascinating topics. Thank you so much. Okay, well, that's our show. Thanks for clicking, tapping, swiping, or however you are hearing this. We appreciate it, listener. And thank you to our trusty audio engineer who edited and mixed this podcast. Thank you, Joe Leonardo. Thank you.